the Guardian. This episode of Chips with Everything includes conversations about dying and grief that some listeners might find upsetting. When I first met him, he was very shy and timid and very nervous on our first dates. But over the course of our relationship, he really blossomed into a very confident young man uh, who really wanted to put his name out there, put out his message. This is Adam Packer telling me about his partner, Dean Eastman. Dean was a journalist and he really made that both a professional part of his life and a personal part of his life. And he took that very seriously and uh, realised that he wanted to do something different. So Dean set up His Kind magazine, and the purpose of that was to uplift and to raise the voices of people in the LGBTQ community who we don't usually hear from. Dean tried to use his platform not just to advocate for these issues, but also to try and make some change. Dean died in 2017, after two years of living with cancer. Before he died, Dean was very active on Twitter, Dean really used Twitter and other social media as a way to get his voice heard and to uplift the voices of others. Dean used Twitter to share his cancer journey, which I think was a really important part of Dean's use of Twitter. It's really important for other people and other young gay people to see somebody like them going through cancer treatment. Adam often revisits Dean's account. It offers me a lot of solace in the darkest moments of my grieving process, where I'm able to rehear and relive some of the journeys, the moments, the stories that Dean was able to share online. I mean, I was watching Dean writing these tweets. I was helping Dean construct these tweets sometimes, and rereading and proofreading with Dean. So they hold a lot of sentimental value to me, in the same way that like, I have physical objects, like I have a cuddly toy that Dean bought me. And so all of Dean's tweets and Twitter content, though it just seems like data to anybody else, to me holds a lot of sentimental value. But at the end of November, Twitter announced a policy change that Adam found really upsetting. The social media platform said it would delete older accounts that had been inactive for six months or more, unless users logged in before 11th of December. Twitter said this would allow the platform to, quote, present more accurate, credible information people can trust across Twitter. We might not necessarily be thinking about it on an everyday basis, that the tweets that we share online or the things that we put up might hold emotional and personal significance to the people that we love, but they do. I've spoken a lot about how much Dean's tweets mean to me, but it's also how important Dean's tweets meant to him. He invested so much time into building his social media account, into building his Twitter, I would hate to say a Twitter brand, but he had a personality online and he had a story, and a story that I still want people to be able to access and to hear. Twitter faced a swift backlash, and only a few days later halted its plans. But this story started a wider conversation about how social media platforms should handle the accounts of users who have died. We do want to keep the people we've known who have died in our lives somehow, and technology is going to change the way we do that, maybe we'll make it more accessible and broader, and there'll be more of it. I'm Jordan Erica Weber, and this week I look at the growing trend of memorialising people through their social media accounts. And I explore how technology in general is used in end-of-life preparation, both for the person who is dying and for the loved ones they're leaving behind. 
This is Chips With Everything. Yeah, so uh, Twitter made an announcement that they are finally going to be doing something with all the dormant accounts on Twitter. Um, a lot of usernames are kind of used up and so people kind of want This to is Sarah Unwin, a digital arts producer and the founder of Death Futures, a project concerned with how technology and digital culture are changing our relationship with death and dying. Um, and it's just kind of taking up space for them, but also uh, people want She to explained that Twitter never meant for this announcement to cause controversy. It had a few reasons. Firstly, a lot of people, like our own Alex Hearn, have their eyes on old usernames that were registered years ago but aren't in use, and would have been happy to see those freed up. This might seem innocuous, but Adam explains how it could actually cause harm. I can't imagine what it would feel like for me or for anybody grieving over their loved ones, still accessing their loved ones' Twitter accounts, to then see that somebody else was using that Twitter handle. And I wouldn't like to say like impersonating because they wouldn't be intentionally doing that, but it might feel like that Mm. and it might seem like that and it might read like that to somebody who's grieving. Twitter also believed that closing down unused accounts could reduce the risk of old accounts being hacked. But as Sarah explains, the inactive account policy could also weed out some of the fakes we've heard so much about. A lot of accounts that are set up that are dormant are bots as well. And so it's kind of within their kind of longer term plans of kind of eradicating those kind of accounts online that are perhaps more unwelcome. That's why they wanted to kind of implement this new procedure of reclaiming dormant accounts. Almost immediately after Twitter announced the plan, its own platform became the podium for people to voice their concerns. Online, on Twitter and other social media platforms, very quickly, people were um, in a little bit of a state of panic, saying, no, please don't do this, almost begging uh, Twitter to kind of change their plans in regards to this. And so quite quickly, this as a topic was was trending online and uh, more people were having kind of an open conversation about what the impacts of that could be for them in the future, if they died or if their loved ones died or when they will die. Adam was one of those who implored Twitter to think again. So I first heard about Twitter's uh, six-month inactive account ban policy via an article that a journalist had shared. And this was just as I was going into bed checking up on the news. And I quote retweeted the article and the tweets asking Twitter to reconsider or to postpone their ban until they thought about ways to memorialise tweets. Twitter has, on occasion, been slow to react to this kind of mass criticism, but Sarah says that this time they moved fast. So Twitter have amazingly responded and said that they're going to put this on pause at the moment and kind of reconsider um, what their approach is going to be for this. They do have a policy around digital legacy and how to manage accounts after death, but they don't have any things set in place around memorialisation. So I would be expecting their next steps to be developing a policy around that, really. And hopefully there'll be an announcement about that soon. What, what are their existing policies then? Um, so their existing policy is that if one of your loved ones, so it has to be a family member, has passed away, that you can contact Twitter and have the page deleted, um, if that's something that you're looking to do which you have to kind of put forward proof of being a family member. You have to show a death certificate and you kind of have to talk in depth about your relationship and how this person has passed away. So it can feel quite intrusive and upsetting to have to do. 
but a lot of people don't know about the steps you can take around managing social media accounts after death or perhaps don't even think about it and they don't really explicitly promote this option. So I do like the fact that this more open conversation will mean that more people will kind of gain awareness of how to manage those social media accounts when something like this happens. On the same day as the original announcement, the Twitter support account tweeted an apology for the confusion and concerns they caused, calling it a miss on their part, and said they won't remove any inactive accounts until they create a new way for people to memorialise accounts. But there are already groups looking to work with social media platforms on this very issue. Most prominently is the Digital Legacy Association, which is a project that was developed out of a a group of people who work in palliative care to help guide people um, and advise them on how to manage their digital estates. So they've got an amazing website that's a resource of kind of templates and how-tos when it comes to kind of managing those things. There's also kind of within the uh, academic communities, there's groups such as the Deaf Online Research Network, which are a group of researchers kind of looking at, from a sociological perspective, of how we are engaging with deaf online now as a society. And they are kind of looking to consult social media platforms on perhaps what the best practice for this can be. How much is this an issue in general then, not just on Twitter, but across the internet, this idea of memorialising loved ones online? I'd say it's a very big problem Facebook in particular uh, kind of took the lead really in terms of their uh, management of um, social media accounts. And for a long time, they've had an option for you to be able to memorialise a page. But they recently, within the last couple of years, have developed an option for you to name a legacy contact. So someone who can access your account after it's been proved that you've passed away. And then that can be a space for people to kind of leave messages and pictures moving forward within time. But again, Facebook don't openly promote that this is something that's available. I think thinking more widely across social media and internet as a whole, thinking about how we leave our trace digitally and digital assets, there's actually not that many people who are really thinking about this, other than people who kind of engage with kind of palliative care and the end of life industry otherwise. Uh, Social media platforms like Snapchat don't have any policy at all. And it's an interesting time to see this being developed. And I'm looking forward to this conversation around Twitter, perhaps prompting the social media platforms to do a little bit more within this area. Sarah believes that social media accounts should be treated as important memorabilia that loved ones use, just as they would turn to a photo album or home video. Social media accounts are not just ways for us to remember um, our loved ones that have passed. It'll be the way that we look at our history as as, as a wider culture for for years to come. So kind of eradicating these um, social media accounts is almost snipping some of our social history away. And I I think that's kind of a, a, a bigger concern that we have to be thinking about as well. I always think about the fact that there's a lot of conversations around the right to be forgotten when it comes to kind of data and GDPR, but I really think that there needs to be another conversation had about the right to be remembered and so that we're able to kind of take control of our legacy online and make sure that our stories of our families and our wider culture kind of are are told and accessible in future years. Adam agrees. Though we have rights while we're alive, we're not given any sort of rights by social media companies in our death. And I'd really like to see Twitter start to have conversations about that 
and taking that seriously and making sure that things like Dean's account is still going to be able to be accessed by people who might need to hear from a young person who has suffered with cancer. But Sarah says that the conversation around death and technology is much broader than what's happening on social media. There's a lot of innovation that's kind of happening at the moment and startups that are kind of developing apps for helping manage your digital legacies, but also innovations to help you take control of how you might have a funeral. So there's things as far-fetched as drone burials and, and space burials where your ashes can be scattered in the sky. So technology is enabling that us to have this wider choice of what happens to us after death. And it's also enabling us to have more conversations about death in general, which I think is a very much a positive thing. After the break, I chat to a spokesperson from Hospice UK, who tells me more about the ways in which technology can have a positive impact on end-of-life care. There's a company I met the other day called Patchwork, and their app is actually to help people organise a wedding or a party. And you could say, can someone bring flowers? Can you arrange this and that? What they discovered was people are using that app to arrange funerals. We'll be right back. I'm Anushka Astana and this is Today in Focus. We're bringing you general election coverage every day from Hartlepool. I mean, the government talk about left behind towns and left behind places and actually that presupposes they were ever at the same starting point. To Belfast. I'm old enough to remember getting on the bus and them coming on with sniffer dogs to find out if there were bombs under the seats. We're talking to people and not just politicians to really get to the heart of this election. Subscribe now wherever you download your podcasts. Welcome back to Chips With Everything. I'm Jordan Erica Weber. This week, we're looking at the intersection of technology and death. Before the break, we spoke to Adam Packer and Sarah Unwin about the conversation started by Twitter's announcement that it would close down accounts that hadn't been active in the last six months. While social media platforms are figuring out the best way to memorialise those who have already died, other companies are trying to come up with ways that people who are still alive can use technology to plan for their eventual death. Well, we did some public polling a few years ago with comrades, and these these figures from 2016, so they're a little bit out of date, but I think they still give pretty much an idea of where we are. So one of the questions we asked people was, if they knew someone on social media who then died, would they unfollow them or unfriend them on Facebook shortly after? And only 8% of people said they would. Uh, 40% of people said they would keep them as a friend on Facebook even though they died, which I think says something about the social aspect of social media. We don't want to lose the symbolism or the fact that these people were our friends. We still want to keep something of them, even though we know there'll be no new posts on that particular feed. Toby Scott is the head of communications for Hospice UK, and runs the Dying Matters campaign. He came into the studio to talk to me about how technology can help people deal with death before it happens. It's a really, really good question. And there, there are a number of different apps out there and some very interesting different um, exercises. The Open University has a very good sort of, it's not quite virtual reality, but a sort of online interactive video called Life or Death Decisions, where you, the, the assumption is you've come across someone who is in serious trouble and may well be dying, what do you do in terms of respecting the wishes they may or may not have made at the same time also giving them first aid and calling an ambulance and the rest of it? And that's quite a challenging video 
to work through and you, you, it branches according to the choices you make because we assume that first aid and we see automatic defibrillators in lots of buildings these days we assume and they are good things they will save a lot of lives but some people may have already declared they don't want their life to be saved under this situation and are we checking that and how do you pass that information on and some people recorded an app but actually how do you then access the information on that so it's quite a diverse um, balkanized kind of situation at the moment. There are lots of different solutions out there. There's no one central place where all this information is being stored. You said it has choices and it changes depending on what choice you make. So it's kind of like a like a game almost. It, there's a little bit of a game about it in terms of it, it's one of those terrible situations it, 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 it's really worth checking out where in one sense there are unfortunately no right answers because this person is dying but how do you make that bad situation at least as as good as possible under the circumstances and it's 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 really good piece of work from the Open University and I think they're to be applauded for putting that sort of thing in the public space and making us engage with this making us think about these things. Moving on to apps before we came in to record Toby told producer Danielle that apps that help people plan for their deaths tend to come and go quite frequently. Part of the issue is so I've you know I develop an app and I say to you look you know buy my app or subscribe to my app and it'll store all your end-of-life wishes and you might not really reasonably say okay a is this secure how do i know this very personal information is in a secure state so i've got to pay to keep it secure how do i know it will be released at the proper time to the relevant people so i need to keep their contact details up to date and also how do you know that my business plan is sound enough that in 30 40 50 however many 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 years it might be before that information is needed I'm still going to be in business. So that's part of the issue. Lots of people have got very good ideas, very passionate ideas, but the business case doesn't always work. So what are some of the apps on the market right now? I'll just mention a couple. I mean, there are lots out there if you dig around, but unfortunately, they do tend to come and go. There's one called My Wishes, which is a sort of community-based one. I have to declare that the person who runs it is also a friend of mine. But that's very much based in community. So at the moment, it's only available in the West Midlands and a few other places. But it is based on the idea of it's not just a place to record your wishes, but it's also a place for someone who is nearing the end of their life or supporting someone who's nearing the end of their life to get community help and make it a community activity and, and support from their local area. And I think that approach maybe is the more productive line to take rather than just storing the stuff out there. But actually, a very common one that's available that people don't know of, it's not an app, but it's an electronic thing, is a thing called an EPAX, Electronic Palliative Care Coordination System. And virtually every part of the country has one of these. So the one for London is called Coordinate My Care. It's run by the CCG, and it's a way of storing both your medical records and the information that has led you to this point and the courses of treatment you're still on. But also, you can record additional information, such as you know, if, you, if you don't want CPR, you can record that. Um, if you'd like to be in a particular place in your final days and hours, you can record that. So that's available to us, but you need to do it through your GP. And so it's there, it exists. But then there are also other things. There's a company I met the other day called Patchwork, and their app is actually to help people organise a wedding or a party. And you can say, can someone bring flowers? Can you arrange this and that? What they discovered was people are using that app to arrange funerals, which they didn't expect, hadn't planned for, but it shows there is demand for it. People want something to help them organise these sorts of things. And instead of saying, can you bring flowers or can you arrange a cake, they would say, could you do a reading? Can you do some memories of when you were kids and played with Uncle George or whatever, that kind of thing? So I think that's, it shows there is demand there, but I don't think we've yet cracked the right model of how to make it work. Are people arranging their own funerals or are these funerals for other people? They're mostly funerals for other people. 
Um, because a lot of them are are quite last minute. So you know, we've got to do this next week. Can someone, mm. you know, help us out with person who could be reading? But there's no reason why someone who's th- thinking ahead and thinking about their own funeral couldn't be a participant in organising this as well. And so, you know, at least shaping and say, actually, I want something very simple. Or conversely, I want something very elaborate. And you know, it's up to you. It's literally your funeral. You get to decide. So, so I think some of the people are starting to get involved. But this is a relatively new area in terms of organising this stuff online and also using. It's not crowdsourced in the sense of asking for money, but it is crowdsourced in the sense of asking for help or ideas or non-financial contributions. When it comes to apps that allow people to plan ahead for their own death, Toby explains that people have their concerns. The most obvious concern is whether or not just recording an app, you know, that I would like my cousin to have my cricket equipment or whatever. Is that legally sound? If that was contested, if someone else turned up and said, no, he always told me that I should have it, and this winds up in court, is that app as legally sound as a properly drawn up will would be? Now, for most people, you're not going to have a contested issue around it, and it's probably absolutely fine. But we don't, it's, it's so new, we don't yet know how this is going to play out should the courts ever become involved. You don't need a lawyer to draw up a will. Most people have a simple enough things, but it's always advisable because then you know it's on solid ground. Some apps are taking it even further, experimenting with things like enabling people to create their own digital avatar that represents them after death. Have you heard of this kind of thing? Yeah, and, and there are other things that let you record messages to be played. So the, there was one that came out of America a few years ago that let you record a message to your daughter on her wedding day. And, you know, even if she's only five years old at the moment, but if you know you're dying and you think, well, I'll have that for her in 20 years' time, whenever she's ready for it. The, the interesting thing about the apps that offer messaging services is 98% of the messaging message boils down to I love you it was wonderful knowing you I wish I was still part of your life and that really is what most of us want to say to people after we've gone and whether or not you really need an app for that or a digital avatar to say that is probably not the case. One example of these more experimental apps is a company called Eternime which wants people to sign up to the beta for their app that quote collects your thoughts stories and memories curates them and creates an intelligent avatar that looks like you. The website says this avatar will live forever and allow other people in the future to access your memories. For some it might seem strange, but Toby believes that it could one day become normal for people to use their phone to talk to a digital avatar of someone who's died. Something along those lines, whether it's exactly that or not, there's a charity called The Hospice Biographers that goes and records the stories of people who know they are dying, in, in obviously in a hospice setting, both as a way of, sort of a social history gathering, but also for the families to have something afterwards, some memories. And I think there is something, particularly about the voice, hearing the voice of someone who's died, I think is very powerful, whether that's just audio, whether it's attached to a digital avatar, and whether or not it's just a flat recording, or if it's something that you can ask questions and interrogate it. But we do want to keep the people we've known who have died in our lives somehow. And technology is going to change the way we do that, maybe we make it more accessible and broader. But even just the stuff we've left of our lives, the photos, the posts we made online, they are still something of us. The, you know, they might be throwaway comments or a snarky aside or a response to a politician, but actually they do say something about us. And the idea of people being able to look back through that and read it in our voice and see the pictures, I think is important and, and will increasingly form part of the way we grieve people in the way that previous generations might have looked back over old letters or the notes scribbled in margins of books. We will also now be looking back over old social media posts or things on YouTube and TikTok that we've left behind because that was us and now we've gone, this is what we've left behind. 
To close out this episode, I wanted to go back to Adam Packer, who asked Twitter to reconsider closing down accounts like that belonging to his late partner Dean. Throughout our conversation, it felt to me like Adam has in some ways taken up Dean's mantle, using social media, as he did, to talk about issues important to him. A lot of people, including Dean's parents and family, have told me that Dean would be proud, and I really appreciate that. But I don't see myself as some sort of digital activist right now, and neither did Dean see himself as an activist. He just saw what he was doing as trying to speak to the people that he wanted to speak to and to get a message out to those who need to hear Dean's message. So though I I feel like I, I understand people's comparisons that I might be taking up Dean's mantra and taking up this sort of activism online, but I've really just shared one tweet that did pretty well. But going forward, uh, I definitely will continue to hammer home to Twitter and to other social media sites the importance of memorialising and or defending the accounts of people who have passed away. So maybe I will become a digital activist. Who knows? (laughs) Big thanks to Adam Packer, Sarah Unwin and Toby Scott for talking to me this week. Special shout out to Chris Agem, who helped with the research for this episode. If you're interested in memorialising a loved one, Jason Scott, an archivist at the Internet Archive, has set up a form you can fill in to preserve a person's digital memories. There'll be a link to the form on this episode's webpage. And for anyone interested in taking a deep dive into death, check out my colleague Leah Green's ongoing series, Deathland, where she explores how people around the world are connecting with dying. Lastly, but certainly not leastly, make sure to tune in next week for a special episode looking at a decade of tech news with our very own Alex Hearn. That's all for this week, though. I'm Jordan Erica Weber. Thanks for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.